Well, welcome everyone this morning. <clears throat> if you're here for the first time, extra special welcome to you. Uh, my name's Chris, I'm one of the uh, eldership team here, Freedom Church, <clears throat> and we are going through a series at the moment uh, in the run-up to Christmas. It is officially December now, so it's no holds barred, we can talk about Christmas as much as we want. Uh, I want to talk to you this morning, I'll start off just by telling you a story, it's a true story. It happened to my friend and their son in a local primary school not far away from here. And it was at that awesome annual event which melts the hearts of parents everywhere, the nativity play. And you can picture the scene, can't you? The kids all dressed up, at a school hall full of proud parents. And there's also all the usual things that come with a school nativity play. There's awkward silences, there's forgotten lines, there's awful singing to a terrible backing track where you can... You actually want them to send the backing track up so you actually can't hear the kids who are singing horribly out of tune. Everyone's looking really awkward. And we've just reached the special part of the story where the three kings arrive at the stable, which happens in every nativity, even though, actually, if you look at the Bible text, whether they actually came to the stable or not, probably not. Chris is going to do a preach next week where he basically ruins everyone's Christmas and busts all the myths around the nativity story. I'll leave that to him next week. But... In, in our nativity plays, don't we, we always have the three kings coming to the stable with their gifts. And my, my friend's son was, was king number three. So all he had to do was come on stage, deliver his line, give the king, give Jesus some uh, jobs of good. So he's all set for his big moment. And the first wise man, the first king comes along to Jesus, comes along to the, to the, uh, to the, the manger and says, I bring gold fit for a king's crown. And he lays the gold down and he walks away. And the second wise man comes along and says, I bring frankincense, a precious gift for a king. And then it's my friend's son. And he comes along and he kneels down at the manger and he says, I'm King Herod and I've come to kill the baby Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> I promise you that happened. <laughs> Eventually they persuaded him. He got the wrong king. He was meant to give him a gift and he delivered the mare. Thankfully Jesus survived the nativity. <laughs> But it very graphically, doesn't it, brings to mind actually one of the key figures in the story of Jesus and the story of his birth. He was often left out of our nativity scenes. And that's someone who actually, if he got in his way, uh, could have brought the whole of God's plan crashing down. And so far in our unwrapping Christmas series, we've looked at the prophecy of Isaiah, that a people in darkness would see a great light through the birth of this incredible saviour. And we've relived uh, through Matt's preach last week the awe and the magnificence of Mary and the joy that she had in being chosen to bear Jesus. And this week we're going to look at this other theme, another theme that's really prevalent in the Christmas story, in the Nativity story, which is the theme of kings. And we'll look at King Herod and we'll look at some of the kings in this passage as well. And it's a theme that's written large. That's why we've got this up here this morning, born to be king. You can't look at Christmas without thinking of kings. And so we're going to look really this morning at some different kings in the story. So if you turn to, turn with me, and we're going to be in the book of Matthew this week. And we're going to be in chapter 2, and it's verses 1 to 18. I'll read it for you. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi came from the east to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose. And have come to worship him. Now when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. And all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. 
in Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. They're they're quoting uh, the prophet Micah there from the Old Testament. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so I too may go to worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. When they'd gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so is fulfilled what the Lord has said through the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time that he had learned from the Magi. When what was said, then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted, for they are no more. It's an incredible passage that brings our attention, I think, to three different types of king. And each of them, I think, we have something to learn from, hopefully, this morning. So we're going to look at these different kings in turn. The first king we're going to look at is, I call them the jealous king. Each of these kings, I've given them a kind of J title. I've not cheated this time either. They all actually begin with J. The jealous king, this, this, this king, Herod the Great. And actually, a large focus of this passage is on King Herod. Now, King Herod was born around 74 BC, before Christ. So actually, by the time Jesus comes along, King Herod is a pretty elderly man by, by those sort of standards. No offense to anyone who's in their 70s or 80s. And he's the king of Judea. Now, you remember from Chris's preach a couple of weeks ago, he spoke about the prophecy of Isaiah. And Isaiah was prophesying to a broken kingdom. Do you remember that the kingdom of Israel was united under King David and King Solomon, but then it all split up and the king is split into the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judea. And so Herod is king of Judea. And Judea is the part of the kingdom that contains the city of Jerusalem. But actually Judea, although Herod is this king, it's controlled by the Roman Empire. And Herod's journey to the throne was not one of military conquest, And it wasn't one of even being a natural successor to the throne of Judea. Rather, actually, it was, it was a, it came as a result of a series of wily, clever political maneuvers and actually a flair that he had for impressing the Roman rulers. Actually, his father, uh, was a man who was part of the, the ruling house of, of of a previous ruler called Hyacarnas II. And because his father had this position in Hyacarnas II's kingdom, 
Herod got given this role of governor of Galilee about 47 years before Jesus was born. But then around 41 BC, Hyacarnas II was overthrown by his own nephew, which has got to be pretty harsh. And Herod, wanting to help his dad, who was part of Hyacarnas' ruling court, decided he was going to leg it to Rome and plead with the Roman officials, the governors of Rome, and say, look, this guy Hyacarnas is a good ruler. My dad's part of his court. He's been overthrown by his own nephew. This isn't right. And he, and he goes and makes this maneuver to try and help Hyacarnas get back into, the, into power. And actually, he's probably fearing his own, the loss of his own position. He was governor of Galilee. He had a bit of status, a bit of power. And he thinks, if Hyacarnas isn't in power, then my dad's not going to be in power. And that means I'm not going to keep my position either. So he goes to Rome and he says, please, will you put Hyacarnas back in this position? He ends up getting much more than he bargained for. He obviously impressed the Romans. They obviously liked him. He stayed there for a few years. And then in 37 BC, the Romans brought him back with two battalions of soldiers and made him the king of Israel. This king of Judea, sorry, the king of Judah. Suddenly, Herod finds himself on the throne because he's won these Romans over. He's not a king who's anointed by God. When you look at the stories of, of Saul and King David, it's very clear that God chooses these kings. But actually, in Herod's case, he's appointed by the Roman Senate. He's not a natural successor to the throne. He's not got there by military victory. He's not got there by being anointed by a prophet. He's put in place by the Romans. And so therefore he relied on the Romans for his position. And throughout his reign, he proves his obedience to them by building towns and buildings and magnificent structures that he dedicates to the Romans. He names a lot of them after Roman uh, generals and, and people in Roman power. And actually, he had a huge influence architecturally. There's a huge architectural legacy from King Herod. He was an impressive guy. He's known as Herod the Great. You know, he, he was held in quite high esteem. And he's clearly gifted at making friends and influencing people. But also, he would stop at nothing to keep his power. And that included having members of his own family assassinated when he felt that they might be a threat to his power. But you know, whilst he's very much in debt to Rome, Herod's biggest battle was actually with the Jews, who he was supposed to rule. He was actually hated by the Jewish people. Partly because of that Roman allegiance, which naturally made the Jews suspicious. They didn't want to be under the power of the Romans. So it's Herod seen as this puppet king that the Romans are put in place. He's naturally unpopular. But also, he was disliked by the Jews because of his heritage. By descent, Herod was an Edomite. You might wonder, what's that mean? Is that, is he descended from a Dutch cheese? No, not an Edomite. And he, I just came up with that. That was quite clever, I thought. Never mind. <laughs> I enjoyed it, even if no one else did. That means, if you look back in the history of, 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 of Israel, do you remember it descends from Jacob? But Jacob's brother, his twin brother, was Esau. And those who descended from Esau's line were known as the Edomites. And actually, the Edomites and the Jews throughout history had clashed. There'd been, there'd been big problems between the two factions. The two nations that were closely related. They both come from the same family line, but they were at odds through the centuries. And actually, the Edomites largely followed a kind of pagan form of religion, not 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 Judaism. King Saul had a, had a war with the Edomites. King David struggled with them too and brought them under his kingdom briefly. Well, later on, the Jews actually gained power over the Edomites and they forced many of them to convert to Judaism. And King Herod's own father 
had been converted to Judaism from, from one of the Edomites under this practice. And so King Herod had been brought up as a Jew, even though he was an Edomite by birth. But that made him hugely unpopular with the Jews. They didn't see him as a true Jew. So who's this guy ruling over us when he's not even pure Jew? He's come from Esau's land. He's an Edomite. What's he got over us? And therefore, Herod's reign is a constant battle to appease the Romans, but also to suppress the distrust that the Jews have in him. And so he has this life of great comfort, of great wealth, of great power. And yet at the same time, he struggles every single day to try and maintain it. His throne, whilst giving him a lot of richness, a lot of power, actually is not secure. So maybe we can understand a little bit his reaction when these wealthy strangers, these magi or wise men or kings, whatever you want to call them, they're referred to differently in different texts. When they come to him, we know that these guys are important because they get access to Herod straight away. They come into his throne room and they talk to Herod. They must have been important visitors. And they come in and they say to him, hey, Herod, we've heard there's this new king being born. Verse two, where is the one who's been born the king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and we've come to worship him. Well, Herod knows straight away they're not talking about him. He wasn't born king of the Jews. He hasn't been born recently. He's an old man. They know that He knows that something's going on here. They're not talking about him. They've come to worship a new king, and it's not him. I remember he's got this insecurity. He relies on the Romans. He's distrusted by the Jews, and now suddenly there's a new pretender to his throne. He's, and, the, and the passage tells us that he's disturbed. He's troubled at the news that there's a new king in town. Can you imagine a group of EU leaders turning up at number 10 Downing Street today and, and saying to Therese, hey, Therese, <laughs> could you just point us in the direction of this new prime minister who's been born? We've heard they're awesome. Someone who's actually a brilliant prime minister and they're going to deliver a perfect Brexit deal. And you know what? We've heard they can even dance really well. We've heard they're a great dancer and they're going to be this perfect prime minister. We've just heard they've been born. Can you, can you show us the way? Where's this, new, where's this new prime minister? Sorry, I had to put that up there. I'm going to take it off now, though. <laughs> but it, you'd imagine Theresa May would probably feel a little bit insecure at that, wouldn't they? What? A new prime minister's just been born? I'm the prime minister. And I'm going to deliver a great Brexit deal, thank you very much. I'm not going to talk about Brexit anymore. But you can imagine, that's, that's the sort of sense you get. You know, Herod does have some Jewish upbringing. So he knows there's an idea that there's a Messiah to be born at some point. He knows that there's prophecies about the Messiah. And this is ringing bells for him. But we see his lack of knowledge displayed because he has to call together the people. He calls together the chief priests and says, guys, these guys have come and told me about this baby that's been born. They're saying he's the king. Somewhere in the back of our mind, I remember these prophecies, something about Messiah. Where's he supposed to be born again? Where's he from? He says here, he asked them, where's the Messiah supposed to be born? And they, they come to him and say, well, Herod, he's supposed to be born in Bethlehem. Supposed to be born in Bethlehem. So, so straight away he's thinking, oh man, I'm in trouble here. These guys are saying that there's a king born in Bethlehem and that's where the Messiah is supposed to be born. This is trouble for me. He's suddenly feeling extremely insecure. And they quote this prophecy to him from Micah that, it, that Bethlehem in the land of Judea is going to give birth to a ruler uh, who will shepherd the people of Israel. So Herod does what he, what he has always relied on. He relies on a wily political maneuver. He brings the major back in and he says, look, guys, it's great that you come to visit this new king. When you find him, just give it, do us a favor. Tell me where he is because I want to go and worship him as well. 
And so he aims to snuff out the threat of this new king. Now, thankfully, when the Magi meet him, and they meet the baby Jesus, so filled with awe and wonder, and then God intervenes in this dream and says, don't go back to Herod. And, and it, they, they, he escapes. But we can see now what happens next, just how unstable and unhinged and insecure Herod is. He doesn't know, but Joseph and Mary had this warning and they flee, they flee to Egypt. But Herod does this, oh, this horrendous thing. He orders the slaughter of all baby boys under the age of two in Bethlehem and the surrounding area. This is a painting depicting there how that must have been. Chris talked about Isaiah and the people of darkness are seeing a great light. Here you get an idea of the kind of darkness, the kind of darkness that was around when Jesus entered the world, the kind of darkness that's still here today. That a king, the ruler over some people, could say, I'm so insecure about my throne. I'm so worried about this baby's going to be when I want all these babies killed. All of them. Slaughtered them all. I'm not, I'm not taking a risk. It's the act of a man who cannot bear the thought of losing his earthly status and his comfort, and he will stop at nothing to protect it. He's a man of earthly wealth, with no room in his life for this Messiah. He, in his eyes, he has it all, and he will not trade for anything. And that desire that he has to keep what he's got leads to that awful reaction to the news of Jesus' birth. Rationality goes out the window, and he reacts with paranoia, with doubt, with anger, with jealousy, because Jesus is a threat to everything that he has. And yet, later on when in Jesus' life, he says, this, he says these words in Luke 17, 33. Do you know what? Whoever tries to keep their life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will save it. Herod's not despising that, is he? He's tried to keep his life. He's tried to keep everything he has because he doesn't want to sacrifice anything of what he has. Jesus says very clearly, do you know what? If you're more interested in keeping the life you have than you are in following me, you'll lose your life. It's only in following me that you gain true life. And do you know what? Jesus himself models this perfectly. He was born into poverty. And he lived the most famous and significant years of his life as a wandering teacher with no place to call home. Your material and wealth and status didn't matter to Jesus. In fact, Philippians chapter 2 in these famous words tell us exactly the sort of guy that Jesus was. Who being in very nature with God, he did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. In other translations it says, he didn't see his status with God as something to be clung to. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. And then by being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. That's Jesus' attitude. And out of that, you see, we've just seen that. Whoever loses their life will gain it. What happens then? God says to Jesus, okay, I exalt you to the highest place. I'm going to give you the name above every name. That In the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You see the difference. Herod wouldn't trade anything. He wouldn't risk losing anything for the idea of a, of a new Messiah. Jesus gave it all up. He gave up the riches of heaven, the status, the, the trappings of being in heaven and reigning on high, in comfort, in splendor. He said, no, I give that all up and I'm going to come to earth to rescue my people. 
Such a contrast. You know, the sad fact is, all of this could have been avoided. This, this slaughter that Herod carries out could totally have been avoided if he truly understood who the Messiah was and what he'd come to do. You know, Herod's big problem is he's, he's worried that Jesus is going to come along and overthrow him and chuck him off the throne. But you know what? Nothing could have been further from the truth. Jesus, in his lifetime, was occasionally critical of Jewish elites. And he sh- but at the same time, he showed nothing but respect for rulers and authorities. He had no desire to ascend to any kind of earthly throne. He didn't want it. He didn't want Herod's throne. He didn't want Herod's palace. He didn't want Herod's wealth. He taught his followers to be obedient to Roman rule, to pay their taxes. He came as a servant king. And yet, do you know what? I believe Herod, even though he's this ancient eastern king, he, he seems to somehow be a forerunner of our modern Western mindset, a mindset which prizes worldly wealth and power and status and material above everything else. If you look at our own attitude to Christmas, when we seem to become consumed with money and gifts and pleasure, and how much do I need to spend on this person to make them love me the most? Or what can I what what can I get that will make my life complete this Christmas? What's the one thing that I need that's missing? We may may not have the anger and the the barbaric nature that Herod had to Jesus, but I believe the roots of his actions may still be there. Is Jesus our ultimate prize and desire, or does he sit below our our Christmas shopping list of earthly luxury and wealth? I often hear the phrase, you know, it wouldn't be Christmas without this or that. And it's normally, I don't know, turkey or crackers or gifts or Christmas number one, whatever it is. Almost anything but Jesus. Almost anything but Jesus. That seems to be the way society's going. I know I read a statistic the other day. The amount that America as a country spends on Christmas every year is enough. Sorry, it's 45 times the amount that it would take to ensure the entire world had access to clean water. 45 times the amount that it would take to give everyone in this world clean water is what America spends on Christmas. And I'm not just throwing America under the bus. We're, we're just as bad. But that it just reveals that earthly mindset. that We've got to have it all. We've got to buy until we drop. Christmas is about opulence and wealth. And to, to hell with everything else. You know, something's gone wrong somewhere along the line. We've made wealth and celebration and pleasure and hedonism and materialism an idol. When actually we're here to celebrate the birth of God's Son. Who came to bring love and compassion for all. Who came in poverty to reach those who needed it most. And yet our Christmas has become a massive greed party. Showcasing our own wealth and success, especially over here. There's a warning to us, I think, that when we cling to this earthly wealth, when we cling to these earthly experiences, like, like Herod, we can miss out on encountering love itself. Herod could have met, he could have been one of the first people to meet the Messiah, the person who's going to save the world. And instead, he tries to have him killed to maintain his own wealth and lifestyle. The challenge I want to give this morning on this is how much of our celebration this Christmas will be about 
what we get and what we have and our material wealth and pleasure and how much will it be about recognizing and celebrating the birth of this Savior who gave up his wealth. He gave up his status to live and then die for us and then rise again, but in poverty. That's King Herod, the jealous king. The second kings I want to look at this morning is the Magi or the wise men, the journeying kings. Actually, these guys hopefully give us a better model of kingship in this passage. Again, Chris C.B. spoke a couple of weeks ago about the amazing prophecies of Isaiah, Isaiah 9. But actually, later on in Isaiah, we see a further prophecy which actually foretells the coming of these kings. It says this, Arise and shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the peoples, but the Lord rises upon you, and his glory appears over you, and nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Herds of camels will cover your land, young camels of Midian and Ephah, and all from Sheba will come, bearing gold and incense, and proclaiming the praise of the Lord. That's exactly what happens. These wise men, these magi, these kings from a a foreign country, they come. They're attracted to the light. They're coming to the light, the brightness of the dawn. And they come bearing these uh, gifts of gold and incense. And they proclaim the praise of the Lord. The contrast between Herod and these magi could not be stronger. We've got a Jewish king, someone who's supposed to welcome the Messiah, but instead is jealous and wants him killed. And yet we get these foreign Gentiles, these guys weren't Jews, who make a costly journey in search of the king, who fall down at his feet in worship. (sighs) Give us hearts like the Magi, hearts that abandon everything to seek Jesus out and to worship him. You know, they got it. They recognized that Jesus is someone special. And they just had to taste and see for themselves. So much of our Christmas seems to be a frantic, energetic rush. And when it comes to kings, you know what? I am the king of last minute panic shopping. I really am. I usually feel, actually I'm quite an organized person and I normally get everything ready and I have a list and I I got all my stuff sorted. And then for some reason, every December the 24th, I'm like, it's not enough. It's not enough. I haven't bought Debbie enough stuff. I haven't bought the kids enough. I need to go more. I need to buy more. So I jump in the car and I run to the nearest, well, don't run, I drive. I drive to the nearest supermarket and I start pounding the aisles just to find little tidbits of rubbish to put in their stockings just because I'm just worried that if I don't spend enough of them, they won't love me enough. And I make these last minute pilgrimages to retail parks to buy the things I think are going to complete Christmas and make, make everyone's day. Or else I'm just legging it around the city, trying to squeeze time in with this person and that that person who I haven't bothered with all year. But I think it's Christmas, I've got to see them, I've got to have a pint with them, I've got to say hello to them, I've got to spend some time with them. And I just spend my time just knackering myself, running around, trying to, trying to do everything. I don't know if that sounds familiar to other people. Will you be running around this Christmas just trying to please everyone? I think we can learn something from these journeying kings from their single-minded devotion in their Christmas journey. Do you know what? There was only one place they wanted to be. There was only one place they knew they needed to be. They didn't focus on their own needs, on their own desires. They didn't focus on the cost, actually. 
they were, they were unselfish. They brought wealthy, opulent gifts for Jesus. They made sacrifices. They simply had to meet the king. And they wholeheartedly sought him. And when they found him, even though these were important, wealthy, rich guys, even though these were kings or wise men from the east, even though they were, had access straight to the throne room of Herod and they were so important that they, they had this status, when they meet the baby Jesus, they bow and they worship, even though he's born in, not in a palace, but in poverty. Again, I asked a question this season. Will we take this time at Christmas to lay everything aside, to stop what we're doing, to stop the madness, and to simply spend time adoring and worshipping the newborn king? Not just by half-heartedly mumbling a few carols and, and doing a couple of things that make us feel all warm and tingly, but will we actually prioritise him? Will we make him the focus of our Christmas journeys? He's the one who gave up heaven's splendour to come and live in our world, to feel our pain, to die for our sins. And as he came to us, we're called to run to him, just like the Magi did. And you know what, actually, we don't need to worry about the costly gifts that they brought him. Frankly, I think myrrh is a bit pointless anyway. I've never used any. I've seen a bit of incense in my time being brought up in the CV. But um, yeah, it's not about the gifts that they bring him. It's not about the physical presence they bring him. What does Jesus want most? He wants our worship. He wants our hearts. He doesn't want our gift wrapped rubbish. He just wants us bowing before him and worshipping him and spending time with him. That's what we can learn from these journeying kings. The final thing is this, the joy bringing king. I'm sure that's not exactly what it looked like. Um, I'm sure that's a horrible stereotypical nativity picture, but it'll do for now. But Jesus is the joy-bringing king. The most important king in the story is the one person we never actually hear speak in this narrative. Of course not, he's a baby. But he arrives in a blaze of light, announced by angel song and special stars. And he lies quietly in a manger. Do you know, I doubt his appearance was all that special, actually. I doubt he looked... I'm a bloke. So 99% of babies look exactly the same to me. I probably wouldn't be able to distinguish a baby Jesus from any other baby in the world, even my own. <laughs> Debbie's not here, is she? <laughs> but of course we know what Jesus goes on to achieve. The mission he accomplished on earth. He used to live a perfect life and then die a sacrificial death before raising to life again and ensuring that our sins can be forgiven and we can have a relationship with this father, his father God. But you know, in this passage, that's all to come. All we see here is simple. We just see joy. In verse 10, it tells us that the Magi, just, even when they just saw that the star had stopped above the place where Jesus lay, it just says they were overjoyed. Just at seeing the light, that light again, that female light. Imagine, if, if they were overjoyed at seeing the light, imagine just how much their hearts raced when they actually met Jesus face to face in all his beauty. Amidst the darkness, amidst the pain, amidst the murderous intent of a jealous king, we find a baby who brings joy. I'm a father of, of three. And you know what? There's very little to compare 
with the overwhelming joy that a new baby brings. Once I'd recognised that they were mine. And I hadn't picked up someone else's baby by mistake. These photos of me, I appreciate I don't look that happy in these photos. But labour's quite hard for a man. <laughs> and I was pretty tired, to be honest. So, you know, forgive my, you know, I'm not exactly looking thrilled here. But here I am, I do know which one's which, roughly. And you know what, there's, there's a feeling you get when, when you hold your baby for the first time. That is, you can't describe it, actually. I'll never be able to actually forget or even recreate that feeling of, of seeing my children born and, and, and holding them for the first time. And you can't help but marvel at their beauty and their innocence and their potential as your mind runs wild with, with all the possibilities and the plans that God might have for their lives. Yeah, I can only imagine the sense of joy and awe that Mary and Joseph and the shepherds and the kings had at meeting the Christ child for the first time. Knowing, actually, the promises over his life. Knowing that he's going to be the Messiah. He's going to be the one who saves the world. It's such a profound moment of joy because it's the moment we realise the true depth of God's love for mankind. That he would leave heaven in its glory to come and rescue us from our self-made mess here on earth. Jesus' arrival as a baby, as a king, is the moment that we learn that eternal life with God is possible. That we're not abandoned to the fruits of our sin. That God has not forgotten us. God actually did this. He became flesh. He incarnated. That's what that word means, become flesh. He came to earth for you and for me. And that's incredible. And that same joy, that awe, that wonder at meeting the baby Jesus that he's made, I had, the King Jesus, is available to us here and now. We can meet him, we can worship him wherever we are. And there's a famous song, Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king and let every heart prepare him room. At Christmas, we celebrate the greatest gift ever given, the greatest king who has ever been, the joy-bringing king. And that should be joyful to us. If you wake up on Christmas morning without a smile on your face, God help you. <laughs> because the joy at the new king is here. So as we close, we've looked at one king who we really don't want to emulate. And we've looked at some kings who set a great example. And then we've looked at the king, who this whole thing is about. What about just a couple of practical change, takeaways, especially on this thing around Herod, this materialistic issue. I wonder if this season, this Christmas, we might change some habits. What if we did Christmas a bit differently this, this season? There's a book I've been reading recently called The Advent Conspiracy. I recommend it. It'll, it'll scare you. It will upset you, some of the things it says. That stat about the American, what they spend on Christmas came from that book. But some brilliant ideas in there about just, you know, just little things that we can do to recognize actually the, the imbalance in our heart. Uh, in our life group this year, we've, we've just decided every year we have a secret Santa. We spend a fiver on each other and, and we buy something little for each other just, just as a token. We've decided this year we don't, we don't need that. We don't need to spend the fiver on each other. It's, it's just another gift that we don't really need. We're, we're all going to put a fiver towards putting a hamper together for someone who really needs something. Actually, someone who really does need 
some, some gifts and some, some practical things in their lives that we don't need. It's just a simple thing. I don't need that £5 spent on me, but someone else might. There are all sorts of different things we can do just to take away from that sense of, I must have this. You must spend that on me. I must spend that on them. Actually, this Christmas, how about we change that a little bit? I'm not saying don't do Christmas presents. I'm not saying don't do all the trappings. It's fine. But what about just remembering, actually, there's, there's something more. There's sacrifice that we can make. What about following the Magi's journey, the worshipful journey? Well, this is all about intentionality. This is all about our hearts. This is all about carving out time to intentionally worship Jesus this Christmas. Whether it's through devotional Bible study notes or a worship album or prayer or just being with others, meeting up with other Christians who want to share that journey with you. Whatever you do, don't forget about them this Christmas. I've done it before. I've got so lost and so caught up in celebrating my own Christmas and doing all the things that I love doing. And I've forgotten, actually, to make time for Jesus. Actually, he should be the first thing on our minds this Christmas. Don't be one of these people who comes back sheepishly in January and thinks, ah, yeah, I forgot about worshipping Jesus this, this Christmas. I better get back on that train. And finally, that just focusing on the joy of Jesus this Christmas. You know, in all the, the chaos and the stress of Christmas, or even if your Christmas doesn't look like that, if, if your Christmas is a bit more quiet and, and sol- solitary, just remember deeply the significance and the truth of what King Jesus' arrival on this earth means for you. Thank him this Christmas for coming. Thank him for sacrificing everything to be here for you to come for you, to be your king, the only true king, the only the only king really worth following. Let's focus on the joy of that this Christmas and enjoy him together this Christmas.